Online. Hi everyone. This is your host, Jobutieno from the Mana Agile. You are Agile practitioner. Back with the second episode of the Mana Agile Conversations. Uh, thank you to everyone who followed us last time, took time to listen to the podcast. Here we are with, with episode two. Unfortunately, today we only have uh, Dennis and I in the studio. Uh, Ed, uh, quick recovery. He was recently diagnosed uh, with COVID, but he's a good fella. He's doing very well. Uh, Richie is engaged with uh, work-related activities, so he can't be with us, but he is with us uh, in spirit. Um, as we welcome you to the Agile Conversations, uh, we are your seasoned Agile uh, practitioners, and we're going to share our, our experiences from our workplaces, from the deep in the trenches. And um, we hope that what we've learned and what you continue learning will help you, especially those who are just starting off in the Agile journey. And these conversations will help build a strong, you know, and foster a community of, uh, uh, how would I put it? Foster so a community of what? Of agility. Agility, there you go. So, Dennis, without much ado, what's your most recent or memorable Agile moment? Sorry, apologies. I think I jumped onto the point without even asking Dennis to introduce himself, to introduce himself uh, assuming that everyone who is on this podcast was with us in the previous podcast. So, apologies. Maybe, Dennis, take it up. Okay, then. Again. So, my name is Dennis. Dennis Mongi. I'm an agile practitioner in uh, various fields. So I've, let me just say I have worked a lot. So I'm in the tech space. I'm in the um, FMG space. I, I'm in banking. I have done a lot of things. So back to what uh, Job was pointing out in regards to my most recent or memorable moment. So I, <clears throat> so I have a team of. Um, six different individuals we are currently working on a on a product and uh, i've been with the team close to a year now now ideally in most cases you find scrum masters are like fully fully invested in the teams they don't you know they don't have time to break so for the first time the team asked us i mean the team asked me to do a retrospective and i was like okay this is new they never do that it's always me who says it's time for retrospective. Let's do this. Let's do this. So they're like, yes, let's do a retro. And like, okay, 80% of the team was there. We did it. And the shocking thing, having that in my retros, we, I normally use the, the foil approach where we check what was liked, loved, learned, and what lacked. Shockingly, there was nothing that lacked. And I was like, as in, this is awesome. Mm. The team is getting better. Yes. I think for me, um, it came when a colleague from a previous organization that I worked with, I mean, it came as a shocker because uh, it's not every day when, uh, you know, former colleagues reach out. And this is a team that we started off, uh, you know, from the trenches. And when I was leaving, we had already begun a journey uh, towards an MVP that was supposed to aid uh, the business in, in uh, you know, easing some of the pain points when it comes to interacting with some of their customers. So this is an insurance business. So apparently the MVP that we'd envisioned had already gone out into the market. They'd already uh, built on top of it. They had like, uh, you know, the, the best release they went to have, again, then they had a version 1.1, to 1.2, 1.3, 1.4. They've already reached a stability point and now they are now, you know, expanding to now beyond Nairobi region. And 
you know, the product owner just reached out and said, uh, called me and a number of guys who had left the organizations. And she was like, you know, you guys, we need to celebrate. We need to celebrate. You know, this is something she had a passion for. And I was actually passionate about it because it even affected me uh, as a customer. And with something we really fought the organization. Because remember, when you when you look at um when you look at uh one of the agile uh, principles and it talks about um the best architectures emerge emerge from what the best architectures actually emerge from within so so it's something that we really built and she was amazed at not only the impact uh, of the products it's not really a fully fledged product but it has 20% of the features that is actually easing the pain of the 80% of the people both customers both business and both employees and the saving is the savings out of that is beyond 100 million Even business itself couldn't believe that they had got that much saving and for me that's my most even the best memorable agile moment awesome yeah i mean uh, i was amazed and I, I mean it's a team that has actually matured and uh, this, is a t- this is a team that is actually looking to grow now um i want to bring up a point that will help build the conversation for today and uh, today, the two points which I'm going to bring up after bring up my intro that I want us to deliberate on. But first of all, allow me to uh, caption this. And it's something that I think I'd captioned, uh, I think, late last year. So we've seen how organizations struggle and, um, you know, feel pain when it comes to agile application and even scaling agile across the different parts of the organization. And this is one thing that I came to learn. That you know, when you're calculating the cost of a failed agile growth or a failed agile expansion, we need to consider more than one, the lost time, the resources that were wasted, the productivity that were withered, you know, and the chance that we threw away. And we need to now start considering one. What about the hopes that were destroyed, the trusts that was shattered? The opportunity to, you know, embrace compassion as a team, as an organization, and at an individual level, and as just to bring about stability, because in any organization that normally starts out with an agile journey, there's normally this excitement about bringing change and feeling as part of a team that is making impact, and when that fails to materialize, hope is normally destroyed, and you find it very hard for the team, or for the those who are left behind to actually, you know. Keep going. And for me, when I talk about the experience that I've just said, it, it tells me that the hope was still there and the team still believed there was something that was possible. So this brings me to the question, uh, Dennis, when it comes to, especially because we do want to look at getting Agile right, okay? Now, for an, an organization that is just starting out and that is in the trenches and it wants to build the rails of you know, an Agile way of product or service delivery, so the key question is, what does it mean to be agile and what does it mean to do agile? And then where do we pivot between being agile and doing agile? Dennis. Okay, then. So that's a lot. I'm just thinking. So many, so many, um, so many things. So ideally, to be agile is just for you to actually thrive in a turbulent business environment. So in this case, we talk about 
you know, technology shifting, the market is shifting, and all that into its scope. Being agile, it's all about having that full collaboration where you listen to the customer and you actually execute like what is of most value to that customer and how the general workings are, you know, with the different stakeholders in whatever project or product you're doing. Now, when we talk about doing agile, this is just um, what most organizations normally do. You just take what has been applied in a specific framework. So in this case, it could be Scrum, it could be Kanban, it could be Crystal, but you just copy-paste it. Like, yes, we need a product owner. Yes, we need a Scrum master. Yes, we need these events. Yes, we need these artifacts. That is actually like doing Agile. Now, there is nothing wrong with doing Agile per se. Why? It's normally like the first step where you now start following what the framework has set. Then from there, you actually now mature up and start assessing what in that framework can actually assist you to be better not a scenario where you use the framework for your own gains. And it's actually very, very simple. So are you getting value from using that framework? Is your customer getting that desired value? Because I've been in, I've been in organizations where it reaches to a point where you ask, like the, the project lead or uh, the product owner, do we have data to support why we are doing this project? And in most cases, they're like, um, yes, many people in our industry are actually doing this, so we have to do it. And I'm like, no, mm. that's a wrong answer. Because remember, as much as you're in the same field or the same uh, industry, your customer are your customers. Whatever you do with them is completely different. You could be in the same field, but the way you treat your customers is different, and that is what you're supposed to get. So what are the customers saying? And are you giving them the value that actually uh, they deserve? So when you have that in place, mm -hmm. then you get the difference between being agile and actually doing agile. Precisely. And for me, when you talk about being agile, and just allow me to build that. And, and this is where I normally say that it is important for anybody who's trying to get their foot in uh, into this space and to build the capability to go back and understand um, why, where did the Agile Manifesto start? And again, while most people tend to think that the Agile Manifesto was conceived and birthed in 201, it has its ways way, way, way back into the 70s and 80s. I mean, go, go read the book uh, on um, the, uh, about how, uh, what's the name of this book? I'm forgetting its book. Uh, I'm just forgetting about I'll just remember it right now. You find that the certain it has tentacles that originate all the way, but the whole manifesto was actually put together, having now looked deeply at everything the practices. And no, when it says that we are constantly discovering new ways, and it comes to me when it says, well, especially I'm I'm quite strong on Scrum, and Scrum says that, um, you know, Scrum is about two things: the customers and the stakeholders, and the value that you're supposed to deliver to business. And for you to be agile, you need to first of all understand the tenets of this, the manifesto, the four, the four core values and the 12 core principles. For example, what does it mean to have individual interactions over processes and tools? What does it mean to have a working software 
over comprehensive documentation. And over time, I've come to believe that the term working software can always be translated to, you know, value delivery. Value delivery. What does it mean to have customer collaboration over contract negotiation? What does it mean to respond to change over following a plan? And when you look at those four core values and the supporting 12 principles that go with them, then at that particular point, you begin to understand what it means that we are uncovering better ways of developing software by doing it and helping others do it. So as in, we're not, and that talks to the core of continuous improvement, continuous conversations. And for me, that is what it means to be agile. Now, doing agile now, those are now the toolkits. It could be Scrum, it could be safe, it could be disciplined agile. So those are the ways through which you begin to realize the values of agile delivery. And I believe for a team that is just starting out, it is important that the two balance because maybe you'll add to this. You know, when you're starting out, uh, and this is something that we always discuss as a team, the concept of shuhari. You know, when you're starting out, you need to understand the boundaries, the rules, the policies, right? This is how you play the game. Then as you mature, you know, okay, I already understand the rules. I already know where I'm supposed to be at any given time. Let's say maybe you're dancing uh, tango. I know this is how I'm supposed to turn, this is how I'm supposed to twist, things like that. But since I'm getting better and I'm maturing, then I can start to modify the rules to suit me, to suit my mood, uh, to suit my purpose, to suit my organization, to suit my clients. And sometimes people tend to think of this as being uh, as hasty, hasty, you know, like, no, man, that is evil. How can you break the rules? How can you bend the rules? But I think that's the whole concept of being agile. Dennis, what do you think? Yes. And remember, even we just clearly point out that it is a framework, a framework that a framework means you can actually bend it. So depending on um, what you're currently uh, focusing or the current issues, let, let, me, let me give an example. Mm -hmm. So I have five teams in the marketing space. Mm -hmm. They are actually read the whole Agile Manifesto. I took them through the whole uh, Scrum framework. Mm. They were up for it. We tried it out for one sprint, that was two weeks. And uh, things did not go well. Why? The reality on the ground is different. Not every organization will have dedicated resources to do specific things. So that's how we started it off. Now how we're doing it, it's different. Why? So uh, like the first bit, we have one month cycles. So that's one month sprint. So we decide on a goal, we focus on the vision, and we have our, you know, our targets on what we want to do, the cadences, everything have already been set. Our daily stand-ups are not every day. They are once a week. Um, and I know guys will be like, oh, no, no, that's too short. You know, mm -hmm. it, I mean, it's, it's, it's a very short period. But as I've said, it depends. I have, in one team, I have five members who work cross-functionally to three other teams in six different projects. Mm -hmm. If you're going to loop these guys in, in many meetings, you're not going to get the desired value from them. So I have pushed um, a different view where guys chat. We have our Kanban, it's uh, on Planner. So we use that where they actually say, this is what I've done, this is where I've reached, this is where things are going. And 
during our stand-up session, it's normally not 15 minutes. Okay, that's, as I've said, the reality on the ground is different. It's normally 30 minutes to an hour where we unpack and see how everything sits. Mm -hmm. And in case there's an issue, they loop me in. Why? I'm the impediment remover. So they're like, Dennis, kindly assist us on one, two, three, four. And that's how you jump in and assist. Yeah. So I think, you know, yes and no. And it will depend on which, it's not a one size shoe fit all. And for example, like me, um, I hold stand-ups to be, to be religious for me. Uh, we have to, stand-ups have, Reason being, um, in the organizations that I'm working in right now, they're quite new to the concept. And um, there's a need uh, from the business side to be able to understand what the team is doing and what they're delivering. So here's the thing, um, and it's going to bring me to my next point. And this is something which is actually I'm going to build on, on what you've said. So often you, you've had the... the the term that uh, this is not how Agile works or Scrum. And that's why some would say, no, we have to have daily standards every day. So that those were very rigid. But for me, there's a reason why I hold those uh, events and ceremonies religiously. Because the team, and you, you gave a good concept at the beginning, you know, as in the team did the retro on their own, they discussed everything. Yes. They didn't need you. But, you know, for where you're starting off and where you're guiding, you know, you're hand-holding, you know, you want them to understand why is this important? Why? Then over time, you know, what works for you, what does not work for you? And for me, I'm at a point where the leadership, we want a buy-in from the leadership, okay? But also, again, we are also looking to earn the right for leadership to listen to us and to, you know, give us that confidence that we're able to do what we have promised to do as a team and to deliver in the best way that we've promised to do. Okay. And then, then that brings for us to certain elements and concepts. Like for me, it's important that as we go into a delivery and it will depend on the situation. I mean, a tech delivery, you're in marketing. So we need to be able to uh, size. We need to be able to estimate, you know, to be able just to know, depending on our, once you've already established your velocity, to be able to advise business that according to this value that you want, this MVP, it will take us X number of days, X number of weeks to give you the first, the best release and things like that. But that doesn't uh, deter us from to constantly uh, demonstrating uh, value to, to, to stakeholders, trying to inform them what happens and so forth. Then, which now brings me to the point, Dennis. How then should an organization or teams co-create a culture? Because for you, that's co-create. That's a culture that you, you as a team, have co-created. You didn't just wake up as a scrum master and just say, "We're not going to have stand-ups every day." So how how did you guys co-create? I mean, curate that culture and how to get to the point that it works for you? Okay, so I'm currently working over many, but. In, in the specific uh, department in marketing, we are over 100. And the biggest driver, ideally, even in the global space, that assists you to you know, merge that culture on agility, both on a team level and uh, you know, also on the customer level, is a retrospective. Most companies don't have retrospectives. So what um, I set out to do, so this was actually this year, we have retros on capability building 
So capability building will be, in this case, we are training guys on uh, the human sense, the human insights. So this is the data we have from the customers that this is one, two, three, four. We have another space where we speak about agility. So these are in the strategic build of it. I believe every company should have this where the capability team, it could be anything, it could be HR, it could be, you know, who is actually pushing these capabilities to be there. Show the value from those specific capabilities. Then from there, have a retro. Because remember, there's agile in the teams and there is agility for the whole organization. Having that most agile teams across functional you're going to link up with people who do not understand what Agile is. But you need to upskill them and show them this is what we mean by being Agile. Mm-hmm. And for this team, being Agile is one, two, three, four. If it reaches to a point where you have a lot of many Agile teams and you have many people who are not informed, it actually kills the whole, as you say, the hope mm-hmm. of bringing that change. Mm-hmm. So when it comes from leadership or in the strategic uh, departments, if you have an, a strategic uh, team, they need to link up with HR or with the team that does capabilities, start this capability building. Mm-hmm. It could be even once a month, just something small. Hi, this is what Agile is. This is what you're doing and so forth. This is what the company is doing. Re- make sure it's purposely put that this is the vision of the company. This is where we want to go. These are the steps of how we are going to do it throughout the whole year. Mm. And this is your take. This is how you can help us. Then from there, when they come to an Agile team, you've already done something to their mind. Mm. And that's now, it builds now that co-creation of you know, the different teams, the customers, and all that. Because I've seen in certain organizations where at random, like even now, when you use Microsoft Teams, it reaches to a point, it asks you, kindly rate us. Mm. Google Play Store, when you use the most applications, they want that data. Why? They want to know how to improve. How can they be better? And if you action on that, then you actually give the value and the value for the Agile team is in. Mm. So, yes. So, so you, you've actually talked about setting up the environment uh, for Agile to thrive in. And that is part of uh, culture building. And um, there's one thing that I read in a book. Um, it's called uh, Scrum, The Art of Doing Twice the Work in Half the Time by Jeff Sutherland. And um, it, it talks, there's a particular chapter that he dedicates to, you know, to the environment. You know, why is the environment the way it is? You know, sometimes we tend to think, uh, think that maybe it's the, it's, the, it's the individuals who are, you know, like that. But he says that really, when you think about it, it's not really the individuals, but it's the system that has created those uh, elements that makes people so rigid. And he says that, you know, it's it's easy to want to blame someone, to point fingers, yeah? Because it makes you feel better because in a way, you tend to have this thought that I'd have done it in a different way, right? But it's all about changing the environment and the system. And that speaks to the culture that you want to build. And for me, when you talk about culture, um, culture tends to spread across behavior, attitude, assumptions, practices, skills, beliefs of the people. And that's why sometimes it's the most difficult thing to change. And sometimes when you look at teams that are setting up, starting up, and, and I think maybe this is one of the 
um, I don't know if it's the wrong way because um, someone says that we need to set up an agile team, we need to set up squads. So you go out, hire scrum masters, you hire product owners, you get a backend developer, you get a DevOps developer, bring them together and like, guys, get me something out. And you start wondering, why am I getting value out of these people? And the first thing they keep saying that I'm paying a lot of money for these people, why are they not giving me value? And it goes back to what is that culture that you actually set? And for me, in any organization that I go to and the people that I deal with, one of the key elements that I always talk about is can we curate a culture that speaks to us, a culture of inclusion, a culture of diversity, a culture that allows people to fail, a culture that allows people to fail and learn fast. Not just fail, but there's, there are always lessons from failure. For example, we always say that at the end of the sprint, we need to have an incremental value that is working. But in an instance where you've not delivered something that straight, what then? So it's, for me, it speaks to culture. And which brings about the elements of transparency, openness, and psychological safety. And maybe, if, uh, maybe as we close on the topic of culture, Dennis, how are you guys ensuring that that culture is, you know, is thriving in the organization? You know, to make it more friendly, not, no, no, not that textbook thing that people think, ah, today is Thursday, that thing that Dennis runs at 12 o'clock at, at Savannah Room. Oh. <laughs> you know. So it's retros, retros, retros. I'm actually, it, it's never, people do not understand the power that a retrospective has. Mm -hmm. And in most cases, I do not like saying this word, like this is a safe space. I feel it jinxes the whole thing. Mm -hmm. A retro should be open. And you yourself are the one who brings that openness. If you are that scrum master, make sure the culture that you put in there and whatever you point out in a retro, like what did not go well, try to action on it. So that by the time you continue doing retros either every sprint or every month or every quarter, people are saying, these retros have power. We told him to do this, 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 this. We're having a problem in one, two, three, four. And things changed. Mm -hmm. So what does, what does that mean? So these retros are actually working. Because there have been a lot of feedback sessions where companies do surveys. This is what we've seen as a company. This is what uh, you have spoken. We will action on it. I yell it and nothing. Like, uh, let me give an example. So, in the current space that I'm in, a retro was done. And it reached to a point where the vice president uh, of the company actually actioned that those retros within less than a month, the actions on the retro, on the retrospective. It wasn't all of them, but there's some quick wins. In Agile, it's all about what can give the most value to the, to the guys, mm -hmm. you know, to your customers. Mm. It could be something very small. And now that's what, I'm, that's what I'm talking about. When you action on the retros, there's a high possibility the first time, second time, it will not add as much value. Why? Because people do not trust the system in most cases. But mm -hmm. as you continue doing, and the small things that have been said, you do you actually action them. It mm. could not be 100%, but even 20%, everyone will see the value. Then from there, as you continue, you continue you know, changing the culture. As the, as the days pass, the months pass, 
And who knows, between one to three years, you're good. And something else that I normally point out to many companies, never think agile is something that you can actually do within a month or a quarter. True, true. Companies take four to seven years to change that cut, especially very big, big companies. Not something that you budget for this year and say by December. We have Can't to. talk. And it takes us back to the first point that you talked about, you know, calculating the cost of agile failure. You know, it has to go beyond the lost time, the wasted resources, and the withered productivity. And it has to touch on hope, trust, compassion, and stability. Because when someone actually gets the feeling that what they raised is actually being actioned on, and actually the thought that their voice actually counts and matters, you're actually helping to build trust in the team. And one of the things that uh, sometimes people ask, and it's quite, quite interesting in some of the interviews for Scrum Master, it talks about, you know, how do you, how do you in, in, uh, ensure trust in the team? You know, how do you get the people to, to trust you? You know, you know sometimes it, in, when you come to think about it, it's, it looks like a, okay, trick question. Yeah, but <laughs> it goes back to the behaviors, right? To the things that you want to institutionalize in the organization, the the two small small things that you want the people, because let's go back to the core of agile. It's about the people, right? The people have to be at the center of it. Then the processes, the tools, the technologies, right? That's what supports agile. So if you have the people at the center, and it's actually something that I picked from um, a book called Strength Based Leadership by Tom Roth and Konshi, you know, and they talk about specific emotional needs that individuals want to experience with their leaders. And in this space that you're talking about, you're talking about a scrum master in most of the, in, at the center or an agile coach at the center. And that brings us to the concept, why is servant leadership such a crucial thing when it comes to agility, enabling agility? Why is servant leadership such a crucial thing when it comes to enabling agility? So it's actually very crucial, but it depends on how you think about it and how others perceive it. I have seen scenarios where the name servant leadership has not been used in the right sense. You know, servant leadership, you're the one who's supposed to do all the facilitation. Do this, do the, do the, uh, the minutes, do one, two, three, four, do one, two, three, four. That's how a servant leader is. So when you check on all the values of a scrum master, I might, on my, uh, for the many teams I have worked with, I remove impediments on a 360 view. It's from a, a work sense, in the sense that I have a problem with one, two, three, four. And there are certain scenarios where I remove impediments even on a personal level. Because a scrum master comes to shield. Now that pushes that servant leadership in that sense. Because remember, uh, let me give just a, a one <clears throat> a one example. So there was a team I was um, I was a scrum master for, and it reached to a point where one member had lost uh, the the father. Now, having that, it was something that happened recent, and he didn't want to stay at home. He he was actually coming to work, but many people did not know that. So 
Number one, there is no way that this person will be working at 100%, even if that person is physical in the office. Why? His mental state is not optimal, per se. When you, lo- when you lose a loved one, you do not become, you won't be 100%. It will take you time, you know, the whole stages of grief and all that. So having that it was his choice to stay and uh, work with the team for a short time before, you know, the burial preparations and everything, I shielded the guy. When requests come, I was, let them pass through me so that I can know how much I can give the guy because so that it doesn't, it doesn't reach a point that it's, you know, this guy is already overwhelmed at home mm-hmm. and even in his personal life. Very true. Yes. So it's all about that, as you've said, the trust. How do you coach this person compassion. to be better? Yes, there's compassion. There, there are so many things. And I've seen organizations where that doesn't happen. I've seen a lady who has almost delivered in the office because they have, they have, they've actually been told to come to the office and work. I have seen a person who, during the burial of a, of a close relative, he has been called to work. And I'm like, but they're very true. Why? You know, very true. Um, so I'll, I'll give a personal example. So I was new to a team and um, there was pressure from business to, no, we need to deliver this thing. And um, so it was a remote team. So we had, it was a small bottleneck and um, we didn't really, I was still new to the team and still getting to know everyone. And one of the things that the people say, there's a bottleneck over this particular place. So we call, so we we just arranged for a, a quick huddle. We normally like, you know, the way you work, ways of work, you can have your own hurdles. Mm-hmm. So we get into a call and um, the guy says, By the way, uh, can we make it like 10 minutes maximum? I'm at the hospital. My my daughter is about to go into an, uh, into an operation room to the theater. And I was, oh, no, they say, no, no, you know, you really don't have to be here. You really don't have to be here. You, so as a team, that brings an element of self-organization. How then, as we as a team, can we self-organize and make sure that everything this guy was doing, we can actually deliver it on our own? And as we come to an end, still on the concept of servant leadership, and uh, this is something I borrowed from the white paper form by Lisa Atkins, and it talks about, when you talk about servant leadership, you have to also combine it with the notion of a catalyst leader, you know? And when you talk about servant leadership, it doesn't mean that you're soft or you're weak, okay? And it doesn't really, you know, give that connotation that you're really a servant. But, you know, you're a a leader who is able to build culture and roll members into a common vision. You can lead by example. You can seek to truly understand before taking a leadful action. You can be able to stand on the truth, you know? You can be able to stand on the premises of the principles that that back you as a leader, you know, without being too harsh, without having to be too critical, or you know, as being you know being critically attacking or disagreeing with someone. That's what it means to be a true servant leader. And as we close, so this is something we should want you to maybe try and um, address, especially in the job market, because I, sometimes I tend to think maybe the definition of maybe a scrum master and an agile coach doesn't really touch to the core that what that person is supposed to do. Because sometimes some people think that a scrum master, your work is there to facilitate meetings, you know, arrange calendars, you know, talk to PO, talk to someone, <laughs> arrange a workshop, and that's where it ends. But is that the case? 
it's not. I have been in certain scenarios where whatever you've said is what people actually want it to be. And I normally tell guys, a project manager and a scrum master are like oil and water. They're actually not the same side as in the, yes, we're in the PMO space, yes, but the actual runnings of how a scrum master does their day-to-day and what a project manager does their day-to-day are completely different. Now, in regards to what you've asked a uh, scrum master and an agile coach, I believe that a scrum master is normally hands-on with the teams and also can assist the organizations to become, uh, the organization to actually be, uh, become agile. But having that this person is fully vested in this one, two, and a maximum, a maximum of three teams. So that's their core build. When you loop in this person to do something else, it becomes a little bit, you know, it destabilizes that person. And I've said this depends. There are certain organizations that whatever I'm saying does not apply, and for other organizations it will apply. But an agile coach comes to push in that agile, you know, the agile values and principles on a higher level. I've seen organizations who have used Spotify, where the agile coach uh, is, a, is a guy who, or, or the lady who helps different tribes, you know, to work also in a, um, a collaboration space. Uh, let me give an example. I could be a scrum master and maybe two people have left the company from my team. I will go to the Agile coach and I'll say, hi, so I have this impediment. I have one, two, three, four, and it needs two people. I don't know who can assist. An Agile coach has this view of the whole organization and can actually say, we have people who have not finished. Uh, I mean, we have people who have finished their bit. They're waiting maybe for QA to finish testing and all that. Borrow them for two weeks, continue the, the works, and see if that will apply. So I have seen certain views that that, as an agile coach, it applies. Even training leadership teams. Because I've seen an, another scenario where you're a scrum master, you are a normal employee. When you go to train the CEO, it will be, mm, yes, you, everything you're saying makes sense. But just that, the level. So when an agile coach comes in a view where he or she is at a level of, you know, at the leadership level. He or she can actually even train the leadership, even form a scrum team for the leadership. Mm. Yes. Dennis, um, we're pressed for time. Ladies and gentlemen, that's it from the Damana Conversations on the second episode. Looking forward to having you in four weeks' time for a third episode. Um, much shout-out to Richie, Ed, and to Simabox for making this possible. Till next time. Yes. And remember, Agile is made by people for people.